Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and on today's episode, I sit down with Tommy Tan, the street style photographer turned artistic director of fashion brand DeVoe. We invited Tommy to discuss how his photography career prepared him for his current role, how the rise of influencers has impacted the industry, and what challenges he's faced growing a small brand. Hope you enjoy it. Hey, Tommy. Hi. Hi, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Yeah, we're bright and early. We are just wrapping Fashion Week last week. Mm-hmm. I was at your show for DeVoe. Tell me about this show. Uh, <laughs> this show was, <laughs> It was fun. It was for a spring-summer 2020 show. Um, it was kind of an opposite direction from last season. Last season was a bit more romantic and ethereal and um, a little bit more somber and then For spring-summer, I just wanted things to be joyful and exuberant. And I just kind of was thinking about the landscape of things in terms of the political landscape and how people just felt about fashion. And it was just time that we just celebrated fashion for what it is. You know, it makes us very happy. And I thought, how radical would it be just to have a fashion show where the models were actually smiling and and dancing and and just uplifted everyone, especially on a Sunday morning, right? Yes, it was perfect. Just what we needed. And there was like a marching band. There was, I don't know, a band singing pop music. Was it Janet Jackson? (laughs) Yeah, it was actually Janet's Love Will Never Do Without You. Um, The funny thing is it's part of the Rhythm Nation album, which represents... 30 years this month so it's a 30 year anniversary but I don't know it's just it's a song for me that's a jam for everyone and I wanted a song that people as soon as they heard it they knew right away and they would feel really excited Definitely. there were some people in the audience that didn't know the song but they're millennials so they <laughs> I don't think <laughs> they were born makes me feel old <laughs> I mean we're all old now so <laughs> <laughs> it's my jam yeah. um, so you're with Devote is it two years now uh, two years now since 2017 okay so yeah. you did not have the traditional path to artistic no. director. I mean, I want to go through the whole thing because I've been following your career since Jack and Jill days. Oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. How long ago did you start that? Was it early 2000s? Uh, so I started Jack and Jill in 2005. Um, so that was a result of trying different aspects of the industry. So I initially wanted to be a designer when I f- was 13. And then um, after a few after an internship, I realized it's a lot of hard work. Where did you so, intern? Uh, I worked, interned for a designer in Toronto. So I'm originally from Toronto, Canada. Okay. Uh, his name is Wayne Clark. Um, so I did that while I was in high school and when I finished high school. But then I quickly realized it was a lot of hard work. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, everything's hard work. But that in particular was just a lot of work that I wasn't prepared for. So I thought, oh, why not become a buyer? Because um, that aspect of the industry, you get to go to shows and not have to deal with the logistics of producing a collection. Yeah. Um, but then after working in retail and then working in a buying office, I realized it, it, it was just too boring for me. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't... Snooze fest. Yeah, it's a snooze fest. And you don't realize buyers spend maybe like 95% of the time sitting in front of their computer. On Excel placing, spreadsheets. On Excel spreadsheets. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So it's not as glamorous as you think it is. So after that, that's when I 
thought of creating a lifestyle website, which is kind of where Jack and Jill came from. Um, but it wasn't intentionally supposed to be a street style site. It just it was just a way for me to express a different point of view and like I guess create my own mini magazine, but for online. So were you doing everything yourself? Yeah, I was doing everything myself. I taught myself how to use a camera. I would go to events and network and interview people. But I, I really enjoyed the networking aspect, which is meeting people and actually just understanding why they like certain brands or why they dress the way they did. So that's yeah. kind of how it all stemmed from. So street style, you were one of the the first to kind of make this a thing. <laughs> were there a lot of photographers? Um, I guess, like, was there a lot of competition? Were there a lot of shooters at the shows at the time? Mm, no, it was very light. Um, there was only a very handful of Western photographers, like there's Sartorius, myself, um, and a few others. But actually the—and Bill Cunningham, of course. Oh, yes. Um, and then— there was the Japanese photographers because it's been very much part of their culture to document what people are wearing and you can find it in all their magazines. Um, so that's kind of what inspired me initially. And then um, obviously it took some time because I everybody assumes that you come and you're become, you're going to get some work and mag- magazines are going to discover you. Yeah. But it, it was it took two years for me to find a visual point of view which is more, it was more of a documentary kind of style. And it just took some time to actually observe people and learn how to do it. Yeah. So that wasn't, it wasn't until 2008 when, um, it sounds like it's two years, but it was actually four seasons uh-huh. um, that I got reached out by Lane Crawford, which is a department store in Hong Kong. And they had asked me to shoot their campaign. And I just kind of thought, are you guys on something? Because <laughs> <laughs> I had never been approached for a job like that. So yeah. to shoot a huge campaign was a big deal. And then shortly after, that's when Style.com came along. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So at the time, you were just doing your site. Mm-hmm. How were you making money? Uh, just, well, I mean, I also had a part-time job. I was working for uh, a vintage site called, sorry, a site called VintageCouture.com. Okay. So my boss at the time, Linda Latner in Canada, she was very kind and uh, let me have the time that I needed to go do my thing. And she also sent me on these trips as a bonus as part of my job, which was very sweet. So that was my day job, and then going and photographing these people across the world were was just a hobby, and then I really wanted to pursue it. Um, but yeah, it wasn't. I would sell, I would sell my images to some magazines, but yep. that's you can barely make money off of that, right? Yeah. So it wasn't until when I got that campaign that I felt more sure that things were going to come into place. Got it. And then yeah. Style dot com was that an exclusive partnership? Did you have to give up Jack and Jill at the time? No, I didn't have to. But obviously, um, actually, the funny thing is, before Style dot com had reached out, I was going to shoot for NY Mag the cut. And this is actually exactly 10 years this month. So Oh wow. Yeah, so it's the 10 year anniversary. <laughs> Congrats. Thank you. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not shooting for style.com anymore. <laughs> um, and rest in peace style.com. Oh, but I, um, it. <laughs> I know it was it was our fashion bible at the yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um Tim so Blanks and Tim Blanks and ah. Nicole Phelps, yeah. Yes. Um the so days. the days. Uh, so I was reached out by NY Mag and I agreed to shoot for NY Mag and I thought that was great. But then like a day or so after I get an email from the team at style.com asking me to come in and I was just like, uh oh, what's gonna go on now? And then they asked me to become their street style correspondent and I just thought, This is the site that I've been going to for years since I was a teenager and I just thought I have to just turn down NY Mag and take this opportunity because who knows if he'll ever come around again. Honestly. Can and, you talk about the landscape at the time? Was it just kind of, I don't know, the heyday of street style before it got very like contrived and it was very much like a business 
thing where yeah. in- influencers are wearing, being paid to wear brands' clothes, and it was just more organic and fun. Yeah, like this was before even bloggers were fully embraced by the industry. So, exactly at this moment, that's when a few designers had just it clicked in their head that we should democratize fashion and start inviting digital media to the show. So it was only a select few of us in that first season that I was working for Style.com. Um, so that's why when it happened, it just felt like such a shock that these brands would be so open to this idea of bloggers sitting at their shows. So I had never been to, let's say, a Dolce Gabbana show, yet alone sit front row. So it was kind of shocking for us to be sitting there and then to have computers placed in front of us. It was, it just, it felt like a marketing, like a publicity stunt, which it was, which it was. but in the long run, it, it paid off because after that, that's when things started coming around and, I was invited to shows that I was just dying to go to. And even though it was a standing ticket, I was just happy to be inside. Yeah. yeah. And Style.com was sending you to all the fashion capitals. Yeah. You were just living it up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I was already sending myself out of my own pocket. But just to, just to have a role like that, it just yeah. validated everything. Totally. So what were yeah. you gravitating toward? You, I know like you, you shot all of the um, fashion editors of the time, Kareen and all of those. Like, what, what did you like to shoot? I just liked photographing the heroes of the industry because these were women and men that, you know, weren't so much in front of the camera. They're always behind the scenes, you know, whether it's working on an ad campaign or working at a magazine. Like, these were the people that I think um, many other kids would idolize. And at first, they were very hesitant about the idea of being photographed and being out there. But this was before, like, digital media and social media really blew up, right? So it was not a big deal. But they didn't realize that, each of them would become their own brands in a way, you know, like you just don't realize how much an image can really go as far as being in an ad campaign or having your own H&M collection. It was, yeah, it was just at the very beginning, which was very nice to be a part of. Yes. And then obviously just within like two years, it then exploded. Yes. Yeah. Was your, do you have kind of maybe a, an image that kind of helped to skyrocket your career? I feel like a lot of people maybe reference that the Kanye and Virgil, I think uh, the season and all yeah. those cool guys. <laughs> I mean, that was even before Style.com had happened. So that was a year before. Yeah. So what happened was I was in Paris shooting that Lane Crawford campaign. And that happened to be the same week as Men's Fashion Week. So I just thought I'd go to a few shows. And I was just waiting outside the Come to Garçon, Come to Garçon show with another photographer. And then this van pulled up and they just all rolled up to the show. They stopped in, f- in front of us and just expected a photograph to be taken and uh, <laughs> I just was like sure why not if they're going to do that because I wasn't much of a fan of Kanye at the time right so I just thought sure and Virgil was in there and and all those guys were standing in there so I, I just thought it was a very animated like photo so I just took it because st- that was the time when I started telling myself you know you should never over analyze things you should just take the photo if it doesn't work out you just delete it yep you know and that I found would handicap me in the beginning was always overthinking things. Totally. Yeah. It but was- then I don't know if that was the photo that defined me because even people in the industry weren't that. They didn't know who they were. Well, yet. They, well, they didn't know who they were. And also, like, Kanye wasn't like a fashion figure, you know? Right. Um, I don't know if I can say it was one particular image, but it was just when that first slideshow was released on style.com, that's when people took notice and realized, oh, this was a different point of view of street style, I guess, because it was more detail-oriented. Yes. Yeah. Throughout this whole time, did you always kind of have your eye on the prize and be like, I still want to be, you know, a creative director, an artistic director at a brand? Were you kind of <laughs> outlining your future or kind of pl- plotting your your next step? 
Uh, I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to do it, but I just didn't know when or where. I, I thought I would have done it myself independently. Yeah. But it was just a matter of time taking its course and just realizing, you know, as much as I love doing street style, it just was exhausting being away for so long and also just there being so many other photographers and then now it becoming such a common thing amongst, uh, I don't want to say other people, but just like everyone shoots street style, everyone post street style images of themselves on their Instagram feed. So it's just, it's just everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, like two years ago, I thought to myself, how much more can I get out of this? I still love doing it, but I just cut it down for sure. So would you say the rise of Instagram, digital photography, just photos everywhere, that that kind of, I don't know, soured the feeling a bit? Yeah. I mean, yes, I, I mean, I'll admit that it has soured it. And it, it soured the industry in a way because, you know, this was an industry that was very, I would say exclusive is a dirty word. Yeah. You know, because it just makes it seem like we're very snobbish and we don't care about inviting the masses into our little bubble but I mean, digital media, social media basically democratized fashion and it's created such a bigger business for the industry. But at the same time, I guess fashion, as we used to know, is no longer about the sense of mystery of it. You know, it's just the anticipation of waiting for a show is just not the same because, you know, you see clothes worn by everyone now or things are being live streamed right away or nothing's really a secret anymore. Totally. Yeah. Gosh, how did you how did you come to meet the founders of DeVoe and what made them, I guess, give you this kind of opportunity? You don't have a traditional, like we said, design yeah. background. What made them kind of what did you say? <laughs> what made them believe in you and say go well, to town? I was actually friends with them. Um they were planning on launching in 2016. So they started showed, as just men's, right? Yeah, started off as men. So Matt Breen and his partners um launched a menswear brand in conjunction to the store that they were running, which is Carson Street Clothiers. Yep. It was on Crosby. So they wanted to create their own American um, luxury brand. So it was really beautiful, the menswear. And I just thought, oh, you know, one day, if there was ever an opportunity, it would be great to work with them. So after their fourth collection, um, they had teased a bit of women's. And, um, I mean, I would always go into their showroom and just look at the collection and give them some advice and... Um, when I learned that they wanted to do women's, I kind of just thought to myself, let's revisit that dream that I once had as a teenager and see if it works. Yeah. I mean, I thought about it for a second. It wasn't just like, oh, how about I become your creative director? I just thought to myself, let's just see how they react to the idea and see if they're going recept- to be receptive to it. So I suggested it to them and they were fully open. They welcomed me with open arms and I just like, great, now I have this new role um, and, and the thing about being a designer nowadays is, yes, you do need the formal training and yes, you need to understand how clothes are made and, um, obviously what makes sense and what will sell. But, you know, there's a lot of designers in this world, whether it's Eddie Slimane or Mutual Prada, they never sketch anything or, or draft a pattern. It's just a matter of having the right team and being able to express an idea to someone. So, I mean, there was already a team in place, so I just thought, why not? Let's see if it works because they needed the help in terms of taking the brand from not being obscure, but just being, it was just only known in New York, really. Like they had a few stockists outside of New York, but I just felt like if they were going to move forward, they needed someone else to really elevate the brand. Totally. So that's kind of why I came in. 
Can you talk a little bit about how a collection comes to be? What's your design process? <laughs> your directorial process? <laughs> uh, it's it's a lot of things to keep in mind. Like you have to think about what has sold well, um, what have retailers responded well to. That's most important um, when thinking about moving forward. And then you, I like to think of everything stemming from fabric research. So, which is what I've been doing the last few days, working on fall twenty twenty. Um, I don't know. It's just a response to something that your gut is telling you. Like you just follow, you just follow a gut instinct telling you that oh, people will be wearing olive or people will be wearing camel or people may want a skirt that's like past the knee. I don't know. It's just little things like that. And it's also factoring my experience as a street photographer is observing how women dress or men. It'll just be even a single individual in terms of how they've worn something, and I think that will translate into you know a style or part of the collection. So it's a lot of things to factor when the process starts beginning. And then it, you start editing along down the line. I mean, it's only a short period that we get to create a collection. So this past show was two months to produce that. Oh, for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, if we were a huge company, we could do it in three weeks, but um, two months is not a lot of time to produce a collection also put on a show as well. So, How large is the company? Uh, there's only five of us. I oh think. wow! Like five, yeah. So okay. it's quite small. Yep. Um, people are surprised how much we can put together amongst the five of us, but we make it work. Is it seasonal collections right now? Four collections a year? Yeah, four collections. It's been four collections in the past year. So something we're going to try to do moving forward is merge pre-fall and fall-winter together because you know we show we show pre-fall in January and men's at the same time. And then if we were to produce another collection for fall, winter, which is two, three weeks after that, it's kind of impossible unless you have an army of people helping you. Yes. So we're just going to merge it together. Looking back at kind of when you were young and looking in at the design or the brand world and kind of thinking, that's too much, that's not for me. (laughs) Have you become kind of, I don't know, a glutton for punishment? (laughs) (laughs) What's your take now? I mean... Yeah, it is hard work, but it's gratifying in many ways because just because uh, people respect, uh, I guess, me and as, as an individual and they, they're curious to see what, you know, what I'll do with DeVoe and the team. And um, the response was really great last season. And then this season, just hearing, you know, whether it's our retailers from Burdarkman or Netta Porte and telling us how much they enjoyed the show and how much that translates so much into the clothes. That is the reward itself. And just feeling like you're contributing something to, I mean, an overcrowded industry, you know, and obviously there are people that are making changes in terms of sustainable steps and less of a carbon imprint. And we'll, we'll get there. But the thing is, it does take a lot of people to, to make those changes, you know, I mean, we, you can make small changes, but the thing is in order to, be able to afford sustainable packaging or to use certain practices. You have to have a, a company that's all on board and enforce certain policies. Yes. Are you yeah. are you integrated, pretty um, involved in the business side of things, or is it pretty much divided? And- no, I am. I mean, I have a stake in the company, and um, I mean, I, I definitely like to consider that I'm very involved in a lot of the decision-making, but I tend to lean more towards the creative choices of the company because to oversee everything it's it's a lot but which is why i'm lucky that um we're small and we have um my partners who can oversee that most of the time yeah because <laughs> they need me to be focused on the creative aspect so definitely what, what's your take on wholesale and kind of 
um, selling direct, what makes a great um, retail partner for you? And why do you think wholesale maybe still matters? Because I, I know you're at the big dogs, Moda, Bergdorf. Yeah. Where are you? <laughs> we're, we're, so for men's and women's, it's kind of here and there, which is nice. So like, let's say Mr. Porter and Netta Porter, we're both men's and women's. But then let's say matches, we're only with men's. Um, Bergdorf, we're only with women's. And then for men's, we're launching with Barney's next season. So it, it's, it really depends on the retailer and what their customer they're catering towards. But then I think that's fine because let's say our, women, our women's customer is a bit more refined and elegant, whereas our men's customer is a bit more playful and he's a bit younger. So it's just a matter of making sure that we create a collection that can be very versatile and cater towards a, a different retailer and how they want to buy the collection. Yeah. What are you seeing on both sides of the business? Because we're hearing a lot that, you know, men are becoming more adventurous and menswear is ramping up or, you know, growing at a faster pace than women's wear. Um, is that side more successful right now or what, what's the balance? Well, <laughs> so even though the brand started as a menswear brand, um, women's definitely took off and I think women's is maybe 75% of the business. Are you doing both right now? Yeah, we're doing I both. thought so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you as oh. the artistic director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I thought so. Okay. So, yes. Um, so resort, spring, summer men's and spring, summer women's, that was a long five or six months. So it's just a lot to process. We would have shown both men's and women's together in our show, but because there was a gap in between, we just thought it made more sense to focus on women's. But um, so going into fall, winter 20, since we'll be producing both collections at the same time, we'll show them together. Um, and also it would be nice to invite men's press again, just because this past show was just women's. And I know that men tend to be a bit more fashion conscious now, starting even at the early age of 12. Yeah. I think it's it's crazy how kids now, because of social media, they view fashion um, as a form of self-expression and in some ways validation. You know, they, they look up to, you know, pop stars or I don't actually know, kids don't really listen to pop. They listen more to like <laughs> rap and hip hop. And they look at those guys and how they've, I don't want to say flaunt, but like they love to dress up and spend a lot of money on clothes. So that's fully extended in today's youth where they love buying into brands like Supreme or even just if they can beg their parents for money to buy Gucci or Balenciaga, right? Yeah. So yes, men's industry has grown significantly. Um, I feel like they're much more hungry to experiment in the way that they dress. I mean, look what ASAP Rocky's been doing. He's been tying a, a headscarf around his head. So that, I've seen kids in Paris do that. So the fact that they look up to these fashion icons and that they're willing to spend the money and experiment, it just shows that, you know, as a menswear brand, it is great to create a fundamental wardrobe. But at the same time, you have to consider bringing a new, a new customer as well. Like, how can you do that by changing fabrications or maybe certain silhouettes yeah yeah gosh being <laughs> as a street style photographer that saw like influencers creep into the scene and kind <laughs> of change things up are you like gifting anyone maybe some of these hip-hop <laughs> folks are you, any gifting any working with influencers happening yeah we we work with a few influencers just because the reality is that is part of the industry now if I mean, it's a new way of marketing because, you know, the old days of an ad campaign sitting in a magazine or on a billboard, it's just, it doesn't speak enough to a large audience. You know, people want to feel like someone is wearing the clothes in a very relatable, accessible way. And I feel like people, like the millennial generation, tend to relate better to an influencer um, who wears clothes in a certain way. So that's why we we work with a marketing company and 
in the UK called Purple, and they reach out to certain influencers. And then also I'm very, I don't want to say I'm particular, but I want to align the brand with the right influencers that will kind of serve as ambassadors of the brand and that will wear clothes in a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. Who would you say is your customer? Because I know the model you you use or models, a range of ages, um, old, young, across the board. Um, I feel like I gravitated toward it because of, you know, the suiting and it's very kind of menswear inspired. It seems like to me, talk to me. So initially when I came on board, I had this idea of doing a more gender neutral brand where we would create a collection that would either, it could either be men's or women's. But the problem, the reality of that is you can't produce one size fits all because the buyers will come in and be like, I don't understand how does this fit men's or how does this fit women's. It's not that simple where you, simply where you just walk into a store and think, oh, this fits great. I'm going to buy it. You know, like it takes a lot of thought for that to be put into place. And so when we officially launched women's, for me, it made more sense to showcase the clothes on people that could reach a larger audience. And also for me, I'm always inspired by women at different ages. It doesn't matter whether you're 70 or 17. It's how someone wears the clothes. So that's why we felt with our presentations that it made sense to have a very inclusive cast because that test is what inspires. Not just because we're trying to make a publicity stunt. You know, like there are people that sprinkle a few you know, models of different sizes and ages. But for us, it makes sense that our cast is very varied and inspiring. So that's why, particularly with this show, like it was just important to showcase diversity on a different scale, whether it's, you know, women of color or, or women of different ages, you know, just to make it feel like that's what fashion is today or the state of fashion is that things have changed. There's more initiatives put into place and we're trying to be more inclusive but not just for the sake of it, just because it makes more sense. And also our our customer on a realistic standpoint is, you know, our customer can be 35 to 70 walking to Bergdorf Goodman. And to them, that makes more sense when they see that the clothes are being worn by women that they can relate to. So that's why we have a very diverse cast. Is size inclusivity a focus as well? Um, I would like it to be, but it's just because realistically we don't have the budget to produce well, people just don't realize like you have to have an in-house pattern maker or someone that can grade patterns to different sizes. So we can only make one or two samples every season, right? And then yep. we can't show a collection where the sizing is off here and there, right? Yeah. So if if our team was bigger, for sure, I would definitely like to include um, size inclusivity. I wanted to this season, but it's just because, you know, I'm being held back and we can only do so much. So it's just baby steps, basically. Yeah, and you mentioned how the buyers and kind of their interest or not in kind of the gender-neutral styles. Um, even I've heard this from brands, even with um, inclusive sizing, that, you know, they're not doing it because maybe the buyers aren't buying into it. Yeah. Um, now that you're working with a bunch of wholesale partners, do you find that it's kind of, I wouldn't say hindering your creativity, but kind of influencing your work? Yeah, I mean... I don't think it's a like it's hindering creativity. It's it's the reality, and um, you have to understand what what sells because that's at the end of the day it's a business. And I think for me it is a very challenging thing, but I think it's a great challenge understanding what makes sense to a woman who's just had a baby and she doesn't feel comfortable with herself and she needs a day dress where she can push her baby around and then maybe run to a meeting or go to drinks and you know it's just you have to keep those in mind the everyday factors of, you know, a woman's life and whether or not she feels comfortable showing this much of her arm or this much of her her body who hasn't, you know, fully felt 
herself again after having a baby. Like, it's just little things like that you have to keep in mind. So, but the thing is, those are things that are not even, you know, taught to me. It's just, you have to be a very observant person. So it's a lot to take in considering what retailers have to say, but you have to think about the people around you, you know, because they're your customer or potential customer. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's kind of a perk that you don't have this (laughs) traditional background? Like you're looking at things not as an outsider, but kind of with fresh eyes. Yeah, because um, I find I, I find that a lot of designers they obviously envision their clothes in a very f- fantasy editorial formula, which is you see it on a model and that's the end result, right? You don't really think of the bottom line, which is after it it's hanging in a store, who is it going to go on? So I I tend to like to think about that a lot because obviously. My other job is photographing people on the street, right? So I'm not, I'm not discrediting other designers saying they don't think about the end result. But, you know, when we design clothes, I like to think of, um, you know, friends that I photographed on the street and if it would make sense for them, you know, or it would make sense in their life. Or I just like to listen to think, oh, what are they looking for? What do they need, right? Totally. I've, were people surprised when you came out with maybe your first collection that it wasn't maybe like an Instagram look and like, pa-pow. <laughs> it was more kind of, I think of it as more as like New Yorkers would actually dress and maybe it's it's more natural and not that contrived look like we yeah. talked about. I mean, if, if, if you look at the body of my street style photography, you'll see like in the last few years I've gravitated more towards uniform dressing and um, I mean, obviously I love Celine when it was designed by Phoebe Philo. Or brands like The Row or Kate. And it made more sense that in this particular time, people just want real clothes. So to some people, it did surprise them that when I first released my collection for DeVoe, that it was a bit simple. But then they understood that I was trying to create an everyday wardrobe. And and if you knew me that well, then you understand that that's it made sense. But at the same time, people that have known my photos were being very bold and colorful. We were kind of surprised by it. But then that's me as a photographer, not necessarily me as a designer. Yeah. You know, the work. So, um, no, I mean, it does make sense because, um, you know, a lot of the influencers that have come to the show, they they know that I, I like a certain aesthetic and then they see the clothes and they understand that these are easy-to-wear clothes um, that are very adaptable to anyone's wardrobe. Yep. Yeah. Are you marrying your two worlds? Are you still doing the photography? Are you, are you incorporating some editorial into the site? Um, so I, <laughs> I can't be a full control freak at DeVoe, so I can't do all, I can't do everything. I can only do so much. So at DeVoe, I mostly focus on design, and obviously I, I collaborate with the photographers that we work with, but I don't do any photography myself. Maybe a few photos here and there, but yeah, yeah. Um, but I leave tomorrow for Fashion Weeks in Milan and Paris, so that's when I go back to my other job but then while I'm in Paris I also run back to the showroom and work on appointments so we show in Paris as well okay great got it what what's your biggest challenge what what are you kind of excited about or nervous about or what's on your mind now (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, well this past weekend I was working on fall winter so like that's what my mind is on is always working on the next and just taking in all the feedback but um I'm, I'm very excited to go back and see people um, and listen to what, you know, friends have to say about the clothes because, you know, not everyone would, can make it to the show. And then also just being in the showroom in Paris and just understanding what certain retailers respond well to. 
Um, something I learned actually really early on is, you know, when we see fall winter clothes, we're thinking heavy coats, lots of knits, et cetera, et cetera. And then when clients from Asia come, they're just kind of thinking this is really too heavy for us. We can't buy this because our climate's completely different. So, you know, like something I've learned is you have to keep in mind that every the world is very seasonless and transitional and you have to always think of your customers, oh, a global woman. She can't necessarily always be bundled up in a heavy coat, you know, so we have to divide the collection into certain parts. Because the thing is also when everything arrives in store, it arrives really early. So fall, winter arrives in the, the dead of summer yeah. and no one wants to buy fall, winter then. So Yeah. Are you a fan of the see now, buy now model? Uh, no. <laughs> I'm not because I'm a person that likes to buy now wear later. Yeah. But I think you need to digest fashion as it's released. You can't just expect things. I mean, you can you can in some ways like accessories works, but I feel like with fashion and clothing it needs time to simmer in someone's mind and for you to get excited about wearing it when it's the right time, not right off the runway. Definitely. But it works for certain designers. I I do think that. Yeah. yeah. If if you could add one person to your team, your five person team, <laughs> that would really help you out. Who who's the next best best hire? Uh, a particular person or just a role? You mean just a role? I think it'd be great to add um, another designer to the team. I mean, there's one designer on the team right now, but someone who can work more directly on designing and understands um, how to take. I guess my direction or ideas and and work with the team more directly just because it's hard to have your footing in every part of you know the brand. So yeah, it'd be nice to increase our design team and maybe also hire an accessories director because we like to go more into accessories. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Tommy. Thank Thanks you so for much. Being here. Of course, my pleasure. That's all for this episode. As a thank you for listening, we're offering Glossy Podcast listeners 20% off an annual Glossy Plus membership, giving you unlimited access to our fashion and beauty stories. Use the code podcast at checkout. The Glossy Podcast is produced by Pierre Bienname. Please head to the review section on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast to give us a rating and tell us what you think. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.